Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, we're going to look at verses 18 to 24. Let's ask the Lord to guide our time. Father God, as we look at this passage, we pray that you would speak to us through it, that John, used by you, would equip us, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And even as we talk about diagnostic evaluations of our assurance in Christ, we pray that the message would spur us on in an area or two where we can see that we are not developing as we ought. Father, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your mercy and your love and that you take very inadequate, unfinished Christ followers and patiently build us up to become more and more like your son, Jesus. Do that this morning, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, to begin this morning, I want you to think of a time when you experienced some significant doubt in your life. And as you think about that season, was it a okay, uncomfortable season, or was it rather dissettling and uncomfortable? It was probably the latter. For most of us, when we're walking through a season of undealt uh, with doubt, it can oftentimes be disorienting and uncomfortable. We're searching for some assurance uh, that we are on the right path, but that assurance just doesn't seem to come. And the longer that it lingers, it just feels like a vice that's constantly tightening around us. Working through unconfronted doubt can be a difficult thing in our lives. And this morning, we are going to look at the most significant doubt that we could ever face. What do we do when we experience doubt in our spiritual lives? How do we work through that when we are unsure of our standing before the Lord? And it's really important that we understand how to work through those doubts. Because if we don't properly deal with spiritual doubt, in the end, it can have very disastrous consequences. When I think of not properly responding to spiritual doubt, I, I think of one of my former students uh, that I got to work with when I was an intern down at a church in Houston, Texas. Uh, let's call him James. So when uh, I was down there, James was a young man who was fully immersed in the church culture uh, of, this, of this area. He attended youth group faithfully. He went to a Christian high school. One of his parents was on staff and pretty much any youth activity that was offered, he was there. And as I got to know him, it really seemed like he was on a good track in his spiritual life, but he was very similar to an iceberg. There was much more going on beneath the surface that we were unaware of. And over the summers that I was there, he was wrestling with all sorts of unconfronted spiritual doubt. He wasn't sure if he really believed in the truth of God's word. He wasn't sure if he, he felt like he was in a right standing with the Lord. He wasn't really sure if he was a follower of Christ or not. But rather than talking through those doubts, rather than wrestling with them, he just tried to suppress them and push them beneath the surface. But the problem is that never works. It will always boil over and wreak havoc in our lives if we try to suppress those doubts. So flash forward a couple years and he graduates from high school and James winds up going to Texas A&M. 
And during his freshman year, as many freshmen find out that go to a large public university, he encountered many professors who had the aim of hoping to deconstruct what was left of his faith. So he heard all sorts of arguments against Jesus and Christianity and the Bible, and his faith once again slowly eroded until he no longer identified as a Christ follower. And throughout that year, rather than discussing those doubts and questions with another person, again, he wrestled with them in silence and solitude and just hoped that those doubts would go away. So that following summer after his freshman year, James graciously offered to pick me up from the airport when I was down there speaking at a conference. And we were grabbing lunch at Whataburger. If you've been down to Texas, you know what Whataburger is. They take their burger chains very seriously. Like Culver's and in Texas. It is. It's like Culver's for Texas. Exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're down at the Culver's of Texas, Whataburger, and we're sharing a meal. And, and he's relaying to me his experience with spiritual doubt and how in the end he no longer uh, would call himself a follower of Christ. And as he's sharing his story, I was, I was so broken for him because I kept thinking, if only you had taken the time to talk through those doubts, to bring someone else in and say, I want to confront these and move past them rather than try to suppress them and avoid them. So in our passage this morning, uh, we are going to look at how to rightly respond to dear spiritual doubt. Rather than avoiding or suppressing, this passage shows us how to confront it head on and move through it. And I want to begin by dispelling a myth. There's a myth that ever, if we ever have a spiritual doubt or we doubt our right standing before the Lord, it either means A, we're not a Christian or B, at best, we are a really terrible Christian. A lot of Christians feel deep embarrassment and shame over having a season of spiritual doubt. However, the reality is a season of spiritual doubt I don't think is atypical for the Christian life. A lot of us will walk through a season where we're asking, have I really made my faith my own? Am I really living out what I confess? Am I really in a right relationship with Jesus? And as we ask those questions and we walk through that serious, uh, that season of seriously reflecting on our spiritual lives, it's not necessarily a a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing because if we properly deal with spiritual doubt, we can come out, out the other side even stronger. Believe it or not, asking the question, am I really a Christian, is something Paul encourages us to do. At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says to the Corinthian believers, hey, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are really in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet meet the test. So Paul is saying, hey, stop and test yourself. Ask the question, am I really in Christ? And see if you can be reassured by the right things. Because God wants us to have confidence in our relationship with him. He wants us to have assurance in our relationship with Christ. However, God doesn't want us to have false assurance in the wrong things. And our passage this morning really functions as a way for us to find assurance of our faith in the right things. It's almost like a spiritual litmus test, right? You go back to high school chemistry and you remember litmus paper when you dip it into a liquid, it changes colors and reveals the the identity and the substance of that liquid. This passage is like a spiritual litmus paper. As we, as we dunk it into our spiritual lives, it should show us whether or not we are children of God or we have right reason to doubt our spiritual walks. So as we dive into this passage, let's listen as Sam goes ahead and reads through 1 John 3, 18 through 24. 
Thanks, Andrew. Follow along as I read First uh, John 3. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So as we strategically work our way through this passage today, it's gonna ask five diagnostic questions that we can use when we're dealing with spiritual doubt. And each of us are gonna take a question or two. I'm gonna take the first two, which means I've gotta talk fast so that these two long-winded preachers have enough time to talk after me. But the first question comes from verse 18. It says this, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, John starts by calling us little children, which might sound a little bit condescending, but that's not at all what he intends. It's a a term of spiritual endearment, a spiritual father talking to his children. And he gives us a command that he picks up from the previous passage to love one another. And this isn't just you feel in love. You know, I, I was I was feeling more slighted than loved by those comments. Long but winded. Continue, continue. <laughs> Please, so our I'm, loving brother. I need to apply this passage to my life, right? But in <laughs> word and talk, yes, <laughs> and indeed in truth, and indeed in truth. But John picks up on the theme from the previous to love one another, and it's not just a general type of love; it's a specific type of love, a specific love that we have for other followers. Of Christ. That's exactly what we see in this passage. And John is asking us, he's really commanding us to move beyond simply saying something like, I love my church family or I love my Sunday school teacher to a love that's demonstrated by action. Because as followers of Christ, we know that the greatest act of love in history was demonstrated by Jesus on the cross when he gave up himself, when he died in our place as a sacrifice for us. Jesus didn't just tell us he loved us. Jesus didn't just write us a long love letter. He showed his love through the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world. And that's how he expects us to love one another, not just in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. So that's our first diagnostic question when we're dealing with spiritual doubt. Do you, do I love other Christians? It's a theme in our passage. It's a theme that Jesus talks about in John 13. When he's talking to his disciples, he says, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What a picture that the way that we love other followers of Christ is maybe our strongest apologetic. That when the world, when our community looks at the Highland family, that they should see something unique, something tangible, something different in how we love and how we sacrifice and how we forgive each other. And practically, this other-centered love looks like a couple things. It begins with a desire to be part of Christian community. Do we long to, to be in church together, to be part of a life group, to participate in Christian community? Second, this other-centered love means that we'll be gladly inconvenienced when a brother or sister has a need. Maybe it's a family or friend from church. Maybe it's somebody in our life group that calls us and, and asks us to help. Do we 
gladly serve one another or do we find anything else that we can fill our schedule with so that we can politely say no? Third, this other-centered love means that we're not going to be jealous and hateful towards a brother or a sister, that we don't make the Christian life a competition. Finally, this other-centered love, this action-based love means that we're willing to forgive each other. That when somebody wrongs us, when a brother or sister sins against us, that we're not going to hold a grudge, we're not going to hold on to bitterness, but that we work to forgive. So that's our first diagnostic question. Do we have a love for one another? Here's our, our second, which comes from verses 19 and 20 in our passage. By this, we'll, we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and he knows everything. This is not an easy passage for us to understand. And to understand what, what John's saying, we've got to know a little bit of Greek. The Greek word for heart is the Greek word cardia, which is a little different of a nuance than how we might use the word heart. Maybe a good translation would be the word conscience. So how we could maybe understand this verse would be whenever our heart, con- or whenever our conscience rather, condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows everything. <laughs> We look at those last three words, God knows everything. That's not necessarily comforting because God knows everything. He knows the skeletons in the closet. He knows the deep, dark secrets. He knows the things that we don't want anybody else to know about. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And when we think about what it means to have a conscience, we understand that everyone is created with a conscience. We see that in Romans 1 and 2, that God's law, his standard is written on our heart. That's part of what it means to be created in God's image. But Christ's followers have a stronger conscience because of what happens at the moment of conversion. When we turn away from our sin, when we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and he begins that work of transformation one step at a time. Because of the Holy Spirit, our, our sensitivity dial and our conscience is turned up to 10. Because our, our conscience is like the nerves in our spiritual body. Warning us through pain when we're going to do something that harms us. For the non-believer, the purpose of a conscience is to understand the depth of our depravity and our need for our Savior. But for the believer, the the purpose of our conscience is to push us towards confession and repentance and holiness, not condemnation. But because of the sensitivity of our conscience as a Christian, that at times might lead us to doubt our salvation when we do mess up and make a mistake. And if we take that a step farther, our enemy, the devil, is going to tempt us with those thoughts of condemnation that might sound like this, you could never be forgiven. God could never love you. If your friends know what you've done, then they wouldn't even talk to you. But friends, when we feel those thoughts of condemnation, we need to combat them with the truth of the gospel that when we trust Christ for our salvation, all of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for at the cross. Think of Psalm 103 that when we're forgiven by God, that he takes our sin and removes it as far away from us as the east is from the west. Think of Micah 7, that he takes our sin, he throws it into the depth of the ocean. Think of Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we know Christ, we're not the sum of our past mistakes. Our past failures don't put us beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. The gospel reminds us that in our our sin, we're more evil than we could even imagine, but in Christ, we're more loved than we could ever hope or dream. How amazing that we have a heavenly father that knows our past. He knows our sin. He knows our mistakes even better than we do, but he offers us complete and total forgiveness at the cross. But this passage in 1 John 
practically reminds us that an active and a sensitive conscience is one of the signs of a genuine follower of Christ. And that's our second diagnostic question. Does your conscience call you out? Non-believers have hardened their hearts to conviction. They've pursued sin without regret. Their consciences aren't sensitive because they're seared or they're muted. An active conscience is a sign of a follower of Jesus. What about you? What about me? Do we feel conviction when we sin? Are we broken over our sin and our failure? Do we try to hide our sin or do we confess our sin to the Lord? If there's a major lack of conviction in one's life, then that should give them pause about their spiritual condition. So as we transition to our third question, Grandpa Jeff is going to share a story from yesteryear about growing up in the 1920s. 1920s. All right. Well, I did grow up, not quite in the 1920s, <laughs> but from fifth grade on, I lived in a town called Chittenango. Wait for it. In Chittenango, we didn't have sidewalks. We had the yellow brick road. I'm not making this up. This is the birthplace of L. Frank Baum. He is the author of The Wizard of Oz and 13 additional books on Oz. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz or read any of his whimsical books, it's about the land of Oz where we have good always triumphing over evil. Well, in the movie, maybe you've not read the book, but you've seen the movie, you remember that Dorothy from Kansas is transported into Oz with a tornado twister. She lands in her house and she wants to get back to Kansas, but everyone tells her the only way back is to go to the Emerald City, to go to the wizard named Oz, who has the power to send her back to Kansas. So she follows the yellow brick road to the Emerald City. And along the way, she meets a tin man. And the tin man needs a heart. And she says, come with me. Surely Oz will give you a heart. And she meets the cowardly lion who needs courage. She meets the scarecrow who, who he only needs a brain. And she says to all of them, come with me. Surely Oz will provide for each of you. And they arrive at the Emerald City. They're given access into the palace. They go down the long, long corridor, the hall to the throne room. And if you saw the movie, you remember that the music gets loud. It's a high crescendo. The doors swing open. And there is an image of Oz. It's an oversized head. It's hideous. There's fire coming out of it and smoke billowing. And this, this depiction of Oz is horrific and angry and scary. We don't yet know that Oz is a humbug. He's a phony. He's driving people away. He's a bully, lest they find out that he's a charlatan. And so he says to the tin man, tin man, step forward. Do you dare to ask the great and powerful Oz for a new heart? And then he mocks him. He says that you are just a bunch of rattling, crattling, creeling. I can't remember the word, but he mocks him. And the poor tin man steps back in utter fear. And you remember they find out that Oz is nothing. He's a humbug. He's driving people away. He's a bully because he doesn't want to be revealed. Compare that throne room to the throne room of God. 
if you know Jesus? Are you driven from the throne room or invited into it? Think of Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy and find this in our time of need. Rather than driving us out, part of our assurance is knowing that we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, who draws us in, who desires an intimacy with us. The third question that we're asking is this. Do you, I, do we have a desire to know this God, to pray to this God? I suspect for some of us, uh, we've got work to do. Some of us find our prayer lives to be one of the more challenging parts. But scripture, rather than driving us from the throne room, invites us into the throne room that we might become intimate with God. Listen to the way John puts it. 1 John 3, 22 and 23. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Here we are encouraged as believers to come boldly into the throne of grace, to ask boldly, and to receive. Now I wish that was all the text said. Because I would ask boldly because there's lots of things I want. But notice the caveats. First, as Christ followers, we're invited in and we are invited to ask. But what are we invited to ask? Things that equal or approximate the commands of God. Things that are pleasing to God. Things that are asked in the name of Jesus. Our confidence is in Jesus, not in Jeff. And then verse 23 says that there are things that show love one to another. So when we pray, when we ask God to intervene, it has to be in accordance with Scripture, pleasing to God, reliant on Jesus, and beneficial to others. That probably rules out my prayers for a black Jeep Wrangler with a rag top with expanded mutter wheels. If you I'm, pray that for me, I'll gladly share with you. There we go. I'll be praying starting today. But the text tells us one way to overcome our doubt that we belong to the Lord is to grow in prayer. That's a challenge for you. It's a challenge for me. A little bit longer times of prayer each day. A little bit more intimate type of prayers. Listening to our prayers. Are they prayers that agree with the commands of God? Are they pleasing to the Lord? Are they in reliance on Jesus and are they for the benefit of others? If so, we will see God answering those prayers. And as we see God answering, it will grow our faith and our assurance in the Lord. As we continue on, uh, we're going to have yet another definitive diagnostic. The scarecrow is going to read verse 23. Uh, thank you, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Let's continue on in verse uh, 23, 23 here. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. This verse really provides us with a fourth diagnostic question 
Here it is. Do you believe in the name of Christ? And this question really gets at the heart of the gospel message. In this verse, John is encouraging us to examine what is at the root of our faith. What is the object of our faith? And if the object of our faith is anything other than Jesus, then we have good cause to feel doubts in our spiritual relationship with the Lord. Uh, John's really echoing what Paul writes in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, where he says, because if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So our fourth test is really forcing us to examine what is the object of my faith. If the object of my faith is anything other than the person and work of Jesus, that's a problem. It kind of goes back to what Peter also said to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He says, there, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven by, given among men by which we must be saved. It's only those who trust 100% in the atoning sacrificial work of Jesus that can have a right relationship with the Lord. Nothing else can save us. So we really need to ask the question, what is the object of my faith? Because there are things that can displace Jesus that people wrongly trust in for a right relationship with the Lord. I can think of a couple right off the bat. I mean, first, I think of the sacraments, right? A sacramental view of salvation is this idea of trusting in Jesus plus my observance to religious rituals and participation in the sacraments. This would be a person that says, I, I think I'm going to heaven because I, I trust in Jesus plus I've been baptized or I did confirmation or I, I give to the church or I, I try to do these other things. And they say it's kind of a mix of participation in these religious works plus what Jesus did, but that, that's not good enough. As we heard in this passage, salvation is in no one else. It's Jesus alone. But then there's other people who just trust in their, their overall morality and they think that, of course, I've earned a slot in God's eternal kingdom because I'm a pretty good person overall. They look at their moral resume and they say, you know, I, I think my grades merit a place in heaven, but God makes it clear in his word, no one's righteous, not even one person. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard, which means we all have failing marks when it comes to his evaluation of our moral obedience. And if we're trusting in our moral obedience to earn a right relationship with the Lord, we are in, in, in great danger. Because there's only one person who's ever lived in such a way to receive a passing grade, to receive a perfect score, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's why we must believe in Jesus alone as the object of our faith. Because Jesus, when we believe in him and turn away from our sin through the power of the Spirit, God imputes Jesus' righteousness to us and our sin is imputed to him and he bears the punishment for that on the cross. So if we are trusting in anything other than Jesus as the object of our faith this morning and the object of uh, the, the assurance of our salvation, this should give us pause and cause us to say, you know, what's this really saying about my spiritual condition? Because I need to trust in Jesus alone. 
And that really brings us to our final verse, verse 24, where we see one final spiritually diagnostic question. Here's what the Apostle John writes. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God abides in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. So here's a fifth question. Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Uh, In this passage, John says, by this, we know that God abides in us. We can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, when a person becomes a Christ follower, they are immediately a new creation in Christ. The old is past, behold, the new has come. We are justified, we are declared righteous, we are in a right standing before the Lord. However, that's not just the, the, uh, all that salvation entails. Scripture also makes it clear that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and dwells within us from the moment of conversion. And when the Holy Spirit is within us, he is going to transform us and conform our lives increasingly into the image of Christ. We will see the evidence of his presence. Think of it this way. Let's say that we rewind a few months and we're back in winter. I know a terrible thought. And let's say that we're in the middle of the uh, of cold season, right? Where everybody's getting their seasonal cold. And even though you can't physically see the cold virus, you can absolutely tell when a person's been infected by the cold virus, right? They get the itchy eyes, they get sneezing, coughing, just overall feeling of unwellness. You can see the effects that the virus has in a person's body. Well, similar, scripture tells us that when the Holy Spirit has invaded our lives, we will see the effects of his presence. What are those effects? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Going back to point two that Sam was referring to, we'll see a sensitivity and conviction over sinful choices that we make. The Spirit gives us desire for spiritual practices that we were once indifferent to. Things like worship and prayer and reading our, our Bibles and Christian community. And he gives us a deeper experience of God's presence and peace. So with our final diagnostic question, uh, John is encouraging us to look at our lives and examine whether or not we see the evidence of a life and a heart that's been infiltrated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Practically, this passage encourages us to look in the mirror at our own spiritual lives and, and ask some difficult questions. Specifically, these diagnostic questions, do they reassure our hearts before God or do they give us reason to pause and, and question our faith? And think of those five questions. When we look at our life, do we see love for other followers of Christ? Do we have a conscience that calls us out? Do we have a, a growing desire to communicate with God? Do we have an unwavering belief in Christ? Do we see evidence of the Spirit in our life? Now, if the answer to those questions is, is yes, then we should be encouraged by the fruit that's in our life. As Jesus said multiple times, that a good tree produces good fruit. We're not saved by our fruit, but it's it's the evidence of a heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel so that when Satan does condemn us, when he does accuse us, we can remind ourselves that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. However, if the answer to those five questions is no, then that should give someone pause in their spiritual life. Because these questions are like a litmus test that 
reveal our spiritual condition. And if that's you as you're listening today, be encouraged that the offer of salvation is open to each of us. That God desires that we turn away from our sin, that we believe in the name of Jesus for our salvation, that we all come to the place in our life where we understand what it means to have peace in our relationship with God. So if you don't know Christ, the offer today is for you. Believe in Jesus. If you do know Christ, then we have the two G's, gratitude and growth. Gratitude is the heart that you and I want for all of our lives. We don't say a sinner's prayer, put it in our back pocket. We are constantly being amazed that God would redeem us, that Jesus took on human flesh, that he went to the cross, that he died, he took our sin upon himself, he then conquered death, rose again, offering eternal life, and that should give us an attitude of gratitude, prayers of thanks to God, and prayers of thanks, a gratitude heart, leads to growth. Because an act of worship is to grow in Christ. An act of worship is to keep short accounts with the Lord, constantly confessing our sins and constantly taking the next step in our relationship with the Lord. That process of sanctification. Paul put it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation. Jesus did that. But having believed in Christ, you work out that salvation with fear and trembling, taking the next step in relationship with the Lord. That's short accounts. That's seeking the Lord. That is loving one another. That is being vibrant in prayer or growing a little bit more each day in prayer. That's what it means to have gratitude and growth. The two G's that are our response when we have assurance of our salvation. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have bought us with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus, may they by faith confess, agree with you that they, we, all of us are sinners. And the power of your spirit begin to turn, repent of our sin and accept what Jesus did, his death, for our sin, his resurrection, as evidence of life after the grave, and be born again. And may we who know Christ have the assurance, and may that be reflected in our growth, vibrant prayer, vibrant confession, vibrant consecration, as we take the next step in our relationship with the Lord, grow us in our assurance if we know Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ, Amen.